Good evening. If you have your Bibles, please flip open to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Together we will be back in our Ten Commandments series. It's been a little while, but we will be in the next the Ten Commandments for the next few weeks and finishing them up here shortly. Hopefully it's been enjoyable for you as we've marched through these commandments together and applied them to our own lives. Let's pray as we jump into God's Word. Dear Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for your unfathomable goodness to us. Your goodness in giving us your law so that we can learn about you, so that we can learn how to love one another. God, as we go into your word tonight, I pray that you teach us your word. I pray that you apply it to our lives. God, work in our spirits, bow our knee to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us throughout our Ten Commandments series, we've, we've used a few images to help us remember what the Ten Commandments are. And since Commandment 8 is my personal favorite, we're going to do a little review of these images, just uh, kind of clip art type images that will help us remember what the Ten Commandments are. And so Commandment 1, you shall have no other gods before me. God should always be number one. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself any graven images. Do not bow down to anything but God. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not use your lips to dishonor God. A couple of these are a stretch, right? This is one of them. Four, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So do not neglect the things of God. This guy's watching TV instead of at church, worshiping. Five, honor your father and mother. Just to go back to number four, um, honoring the Sabbath. Jared, don't be checking the score of the Lions game. Uh, I, I know they're playing. Um, But uh, five, honor your father and mother. So somehow that makes a five. Uh, Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. It's a broken heart with commandment seven. Because adultery leaves a broken heart. And here it is. Tonight, you shall not steal. Look at that. That's nice. Nine, you shall not lie. I think this is a personal favorite of Pastor Nate's, the lying nine. And then you shall not covet. I think that other people's stuff are yours. And so those are kind of some images to help us remember the Ten Commandments uh, in order. A lot of us know them, but as far as which number goes with which can sometimes be confusing. And if you remember at the beginning of this series, we talked that there are a couple different ways that people divide the commandments that are different. Right? This is how uh, we, have, we divide them uh, as 
Protestants today in our tradition. So we are looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Verse 15. Here it is. You shall not steal. Pastor Nate had five words this morning. We have four words this evening. You shall not steal. That's not a guarantee that tonight's message is going to be shorter. But we do have four words. You shall not steal. I want to unpack this in three different aspects. Three different aspects gradually moving in a certain direction. We're going to start with perhaps the obvious, but then we're going to move to some of the implications of this command, and finally to what this commandment anticipates for us as Christians, and ultimately as it points us to Jesus Christ himself. First, the eighth commandment forbids taking things that aren't yours. The Eighth Commandment forbids taking things that aren't yours. One thing that we should note before we go any further is what the Eighth Commandment assumes. It assumes private ownership. It doesn't make much sense to say that we shouldn't steal something that belongs to somebody else if nobody actually owns things. To say, don't take something that belongs to somebody else, implies it belongs to somebody else. We see this in Scripture. God told the people of Israel when the year of Jubilee came, it shall be a Jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Deuteronomy 19, verse 14, talks about respecting property markers, because People had property, and they extended a certain distance. And throughout the Old Testament, there are laws safeguarding animals, fields, and other goods. It's not just contained to the Old Testament. There are many passages in the New Testament that speak to ownership. Throughout the Bible, it's clear. People own things. You might think to yourself, well, true, but God is really the owner of things. He's the true owner. But just because God is the primary owner of everything doesn't mean that there's not true secondary ownership that people have over things. If there is no true ownership, then there could be no stealing. It's important for us to recognize, sometimes I think if we're not careful, we can over-spiritualize things. It's often used to justify disobedience. Uh, We can say, well, God is in control. And we can use God is in control to justify our own sin. So we we, we fall into a grievous sin. We commit a grievous sin. Well, well, God's in control. He knew everything that was going to happen. He's orchestrating things. We can use that as an excuse to take away our own responsibility for our choices our own human responsibility. We can do the same thing when it comes to the church. Well, we are the church. Everybody who's a Christian is part of the universal church. I didn't go to Sunday, I didn't go to church this Sunday. It's okay because I am the church. 
that's true, we're also called to gather with God's people. We have a tendency to over-spiritualize things. We have a tendency to flatten everything out so that the beautiful contours of Scripture are no longer seen and we can justify our own practice. We can trumpet our own preference. But here, when it's associated with stealing, people own things. One of the ways that, I mean, perhaps the reason that I'm emphasizing this so much is sometimes we can, people can try to push this agenda or push this, this, this type of belief that says, well, all things really belong to God, therefore nobody should really own anything, and we should just distribute everything evenly. Uh, Karl Marx, one of his, his major pushes was, was to, to rob the world or to take away all private ownership. And sometimes people justify or use the early church in Acts 2 and Acts 4 to say, well, they just shared everything that they had in common. Everything that they had. They shared their possessions with other people. It doesn't undercut private ownership. What it does mean is they took what they had and they shared because they wanted to provide for the community. But that doesn't take away from ownership. Again, this can be pushed politically. This can be pushed in different ways. If you're really spiritual, everybody should just have everything. Uh, a couple notes on that. One, I don't see that biblically. And two, even pragmatically, even practically, it doesn't work out. If you're taking away ownership produces more poverty, not less. The contrast between North and South Korea demonstrate that. Multiple times the income across the border. Well, don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Already did a little bit. We'll transition on. on. One thing that we have to know that is the com- forbidding of taking things that aren't yours, first and obvious, is just taking things. Um, most people, th- this is an easy one to, to prove, right? This is an easy one for us to argue. In fact, other commandments are often associated with, with stealing because people just understand that stealing is wrong. Apologists use this. By apologists, I mean people who are defending the Christian faith. There are some who say all morality, all right and wrong, There's really not a universal right or universal wrong, these people say. Instead, they say it's a social construct. Because other people around you say it's wrong, because you live in a certain geographical area, that's why you say certain things are wrong, that's why you say certain things are right. But there's no universal right or wrong. If you don't think it's right, If you think something's right, then it must be right for you. Well, that works until I steal your wallet. And then you're going to appeal to something beyond yourself, beyond something that that, uh, a certain culture agrees on. You're going to say, that is wrong. 
You can't steal my wallet. It doesn't matter if you say it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter if it's right to you. I know that's wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. And so there's something to an easiness. Not, we don't really need to prove that stealing is wrong because we just know it. And we should know it. Romans tells us that we know it just because it's written on our hearts. Like it, it, just, it just is there. But more than simply taking property or money to be, that belongs to someone else, when we're doing so, we're not only taking the property itself, we're also hindering the dignity of the person. We're also attacking the generosity and the providence of God, the giver of all things. You see, one way that redistribution of everything or communism does not work is because it cannot be contained to a specific area. Because if it's just for your country, your country is not going to do well. If the nation has the a power and authority to say who gets what, if they're playing God, they need to go all the way and also be omnipresent, also be everywhere. But God himself is the one who gives all good gifts. And yet, we can spit in the face of God's providence even though we are so blessed and take from others what doesn't belong to us. Well, outright taking what doesn't belong to us is, is very obvious, but there's so many ways that this happens today. Think about with our employers with our employers we live in a tech age and there was actually an article published this past week probing the question of how this changes the way that we work and the traditional 40 hour work week the article made the point that we should clarify what expectations are and make sure that both parties are aware Is it for services done or for time given? But in either case, regardless of how this might change or might not change in the future, if you are employed, there are a certain amount of expectations for what should take place in your work week. And unfortunately, Christians are not immune to stealing time from their employers that they should have given during their work week. This can take place by not showing up. It can take place by wasting time even though you're there. Long bathroom breaks, extended personal calls. Of course, a lot of this depends on the expectations of the employer. But I've witnessed this. You've witnessed it. Somebody's going to clock out it's 3 o'clock and they're going to, it's 3.06 and they're about to clock out, but they wait two extra minutes because that way it's rounded up to, and they get the 15. It's like they clocked out at 
lying about hours, stealing time from employers. Uh, Philip Ryken adds this to the thought. He says, this is not a victimless crime. Employee theft of time and property cost American businesses and their investors more than $200 billion a year. This affects us all. According to some estimates, as much as one-third of a product's cost goes to cover the various forms of stealing that occur on its way to the marketplace. This theft surcharge, as analysts call it, is a drag on our whole economy. He continues, For their part, employers often steal from their workers. They demand longer hours than contracts allow. They downsize their workforce to improve profits. And then the workers who still have jobs end up doing all the work, plus the work that was supposed to be done from the people that were laid off. This is just a sophisticated way for companies to steal from their best employees. Again, we've witnessed both ends of this, haven't we? Stealing in the workplace. Uh, John Grisham is an is a author uh, of, uh, of novels, a famous author, and he, one of the fascinating things that kind of turned him on, and he was, he was in law and then started writing novels, but uh, one of the things that, he, that really kind of piqued his interest was embezzlement. And he said those that embezzle from their employers, um, 99% of the time, um, it starts by saying, I'm just going to take a little bit here and pay it back later. He says, and, and over time, this justification of what's taking place grows so much that they're never able to pay it back. It just spirals out of control. We have a very um, keen ability to justify our sins. To spin them in a positive way. It's okay if I skip out on work a little bit. It's okay if I do that because my boss is a meanie. I'm not saying that. I know he criticized me this morning, but I'm not saying that. <laughs> but we can justify things, can't we? We can make excuses for our sins. We're masters at it. We learn from our first parents. Why did this happen? Oh, the woman you gave me. Why did this happen? Oh, that snake. Right? We, we, we blame people. We blame, we, we, we blame shift. Uh, Wade Grudem points out that the Eighth Commandment is tied to stealing someone else's property, their time, their talents, their opportunities. Think about that. Stealing someone's time. Stealing someone's time. What? What might that look like? Well, you might be someone or you might know someone who is habitually late, shall we say. And we can spin it off perhaps as a personality quirk or um, this is just something that we do. But could we look at it also from another angle? Could we look at it as elevating ourselves, our busy schedules, what we have going on, over the needs and the wants of those that we're going, the place that we're going? They can wait for me. We're, we're stealing time from them. 
perhaps not a one-to-one correlation, but I think we can see how things apply, right? So many different facets that we have for the Eighth Commandment. Perhaps this can be extended. Uh, Jesus says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and there's a, there's a right for taxes. You say, is taxed theft? I don't think taxes is theft, but there can be a, a bloated government that's happening, that's taking away from citizens. Right? There can be government telling employers how much they should pay their employees. That might be a form of justice we might look, but we could look at it from another angle and say, is that, is that stepping over the line? Just thinking out loud here. We can look at this from so many different angles. That's why Martin Luther could say, if we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it's nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. If we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it's nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. I poked at different governmental practices. This is not a black and white. It's complicated. I'm not an expert here. But we can steal from the government as well. Skimping on our taxes, lying about our wages. So many ways that we can take things that belong to someone else. Second, the Eighth Commandment requires using what you have well. So the first thing is don't take what isn't yours. The second aspect is making sure what we have we're using well. So the Eighth Commandment deals with more than just the negative of not taking. Traditionally, it has also been associated with our use of possessions as well as how we relate to one another. Think about work ethic. If the negative is taking someone else's property, then the positive is gaining property through work. Ephesians 4.28 contrasts the two. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. What's the contrast? But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So not, don't let the thief steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Right? Honest work and labor are the antithesis of theft. Instead of taking what God has given to another, we are using the gifts, abilities, and opportunities he has given us to provide for ourselves and for others. In fact, work ethic is commended in Scripture. And the Bible repeatedly warns of laziness. Second Thessalonians verse three, chapter three, verse ten. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We're not to presume on the generosity of other people in our family, in the church, or from the government when we have the ability to work. In Scripture. There's a difference between the poor and the sluggard. The poor are to be helped, 
They're to be cared for. Their condition is often associated with circumstances beyond their control and oppression. The sluggard, on the other hand, is lazy, and they're challenged out of their complacency. As Christians, we should be recognized for our work ethic, for our ability to do work, even when that work isn't our first choice. And I think this is an epidemic today. Many are willing to work if it's what they want to do, if it fits on their schedule, if they sense the value in it. But as Christians, we need to recognize that all work has value. Not because we sense it has value or because it's a perfect fit for us, but because all work is honorable in a way for us to love God and love our neighbor. Whether we're manufacturing car parts that people can drive their kids to church this morning or serving couples, our tables to couples so that they can enjoy one another's company, we have an opportunity to love other people. As Martin Luther said, through the milkmaid, God milks his cows. Through the hands of God as we work, as we bless other people. And your work has value, has dignity, has worth. And is a way for you not only to bless other people, but in God's providence get paid in the process. Unfortunately, in many places in the world today, they have many jobs and few workers who are willing to step up to that job. I remember overhearing a, a conversation um, that it was at a football game of two people talking about uh, janitor positions that were, that were available in Grand Rapids. Um, and they said that they paid $20 an hour, janitor positions. It had been a month and they didn't have any applications. Nobody wanted to do the work. Sometimes it's not that we can use the excuse that there's no jobs available when it's just not, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to do that job. Another aspect of this is not only work ethic, which Christians are called to, but also financial stewardship. We can say we're not only we're not stealing from others by being poor stewards; we're stealing from ourselves. Wasteful living is called out in Scripture. It's obviously not beyond forgiveness. We see this in the example of the prodigal son, but we are called to use well what we have. One reason for this is, yes, it belongs to us. We talked about that, but it also belongs to the Lord. We are stewards of it. It doesn't mean that we can't buy things for recreation, that we can't enjoy things in this world. Scripture talks about how gifts are for our enjoyment, but it does mean that we need to avoid wasteful living. Just imagine that you invested all your money with someone, and a couple months later you asked, How's my money doing? How's it going with my money? Would you be a little agitated if they said, oh, I got a new car, but I crashed it. With the rest of the money, I bought a beach house. 
that's going well. Got a nice tan. See it? Okay, but where's my money? Oh, it's there. <laughs> that's where it is. That's, that's where I spend it. Okay, but the, how does that help me in my retirement? <laughs> like, that's the purpose. We've been given gifts and abilities from God, and we're to use them for his glory and others' good. And often, if we're not careful, we spend them for ourselves for joy in the moment. Wasteful living, poor stewardship. Christians are called to more. We're called to care for our money well so that we can bless others, provide for our family. In fact, where Christianity goes, so does prosperity typically. This isn't the prosperity gospel. This isn't believe in Jesus and have enough faith and you'll have a ton of money. But this does mean if we believe in Jesus, often that reorients our perspective. And now we want to save, we want to use our money well so that we bless our families and we bless other people. I remember going on a mission trip to Guatemala and uh, people were just living in horrible poverty living in, in shacks of, of cardboard with little tin roofs and they don't have clean water and we're there and we're helping them, we're sharing the gospel with them, we're also providing clean water and we said, well, is there just no money? And they said, well, here's what you have to understand. The husbands make money all week and then during the weekend they go to the bar and drink until they have no money left and then they go back to work. It's not that they don't have money, it's that they're wasting their money every week on themselves and their family can't have food to make it through the day. Horrible. And yet we can do the same thing today. We can fall into the same trap here in America. They're wasting our money, not using it well, gambling it away, pursuing get-rich-quick schemes instead of stewarding it well. Third, the Eighth Commandment anticipates giving generously and cheerfully. The Eighth Commandment anticipates giving generously and cheerfully. Not only is work ethic the the opposite of stealing, but generosity is the other extreme. To steal is to take what is someone else's. To be generous is to give what is yours. Jerry Bridges has observed that there are three basic attitudes that we can have towards our possessions. The first says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. This is the attitude of the thief. The second says, What's mine is mine. I'll keep it. Since we are selfish by nature, this is the attitude that most people have most of the time. The third attitude, the godly attitude, says, What's mine is God's. I shall share it. And this is what we see in the last part of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We've read this before. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share 
with anyone in need. Hear that? What's the purpose? Listen to it. Don't steal. Work hard. Work well. Use your money well. Why? For what purpose? So that you might be able to give it to other people. So that you might be able to give it to other people. When we recognize that all things are the Lord's, when we recognize that, yes, we have this secondary ownership, this stewardship that God has given us, but we can hold it with an open hand, recognizing that this is simply a gift from the good giver. And we can give back. In fact, if we do not give back, especially if we do not give back to God and the work of the ministry, there's examples in Scripture that this is called stealing from God. Now, there's debate over whether the tithe is applicable to the Christian or not. And if it is, what does that mean? Well, I think a good baseline is 10%. Obviously, there there may be times that it's simply unattainable. But even in those moments, there should be a disposition towards giving. I wish I could give this much. In other words, is giving as much as you're able to in that moment, a sacrificial giving. For others, 10% is not sacrificial giving. It's a bare minimum. Giving to the Lord. This is not something that we do begrudgingly. Everything is his anyways. We're simply giving back to what is his. Just imagine the privilege that we have to be able to give back to the Lord and impact generations. Think about, think about uh, what we do here at First Baptist. We're celebrating our missionaries every month, and right on those slips it says 10, 20% of every dollar that you give goes towards missions. Like We have the opportunity to have our voice, have, have the message of this church heard around the world and impact the nations for the glory of God through our giving. Like God allows us to partner with him so that others might hear the glorious news of Jesus and come and repent and believe in him. Like that's awesome. Like we've had missionaries up here recently telling stories of what God is doing around the world because of gifts. Uh, that is an amazing, wonderful privilege that we get to do. My prayer is that we continue to give, that our budget continues to increase. I know that we're we're behind a little bit. Here's my prayer. Like, we're able to not only make budget, but increase it next year. Because when we increase it next year, missions goes up. Maybe we just increase missions altogether because we're just doing well. That's awesome. What a privilege. Giving to the Lord, we get to cheerfully give. Like, cheerful giving doesn't make sense if we're clinging to what we have and we're desiring other things. Like, I know I'm getting a little bit into covet territory, but the Eighth Commandment speaks to all stewardship. It speaks to all finances. It speaks to all possessions. And if we're not using our money well, if we're not working well, what we're doing is not only robbing from ourselves we're robbing from gospel mission we 
to how many more missionaries could be funded, how much more the gospel could go out if we were wise with our money, if we worked hard. Next is giving to the poor. The Bible has a lot to say about giving to the poor. In the Old Testament, there was provision made to care for those in poverty. Remember, we contrasted before those that are lazy or the sluggard and those that are in poverty. And Jesus has much to say about those who are in poverty and caring for them. You can care for them through the ministry of the local church, what's happening here. You can care for the poor individually. And there's organizations that really do a great job of, of caring for the f- poor as well. In the Old Testament, there's provisions for the poor of, of gleaning from the fields. Today, there's, there, there's really uh, organizations that do very similar things of, hey, let's build this house together. Like, I'm going to have you build this house, and it's going to save you money. We're going to partner together to do that. It's a great example of that. We should provide for the poor. We should care for the poor. Ultimately, if the church was doing its job in here, we wouldn't need as many other programs. This doesn't discount them. Like there, there could be a place for that. Biblically, that's a kind of a wisdom category. Um, but it's interesting uh, to note. And giving is a blessing. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 7, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Shouldn't be people who are looking to steal from others, but people who are, who are being wise, working hard, and giving freely to other people. I want us to think about the most gracious giver. Think about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the true owner of all things. Think about this. If we are simply secondary owners, Jesus is the primary owner. He's the true owner of all things. What doesn't Jesus own? Like the, He comes to this earth and he's the true owner of all things. And it says he humbled himself by coming to this earth. He had right over the greatest palace, and yet he was born in a manger. And he came to this earth. Everything truly belonged to him. What didn't belong to him? Here's what didn't belong to him. The consequences of your sin. What your sin earned. And yet our God took that upon himself and paid that price. Out of the generosity of his heart, out of the generosity of who he is, he gave eternal life by taking our punishment. The one thing that doesn't belong to God, the consequences of your sin, is the one thing that he took so that you might have the consequences of his obedience a heavenly inheritance.
We could never steal heaven. We could never cheat our way into heaven. Instead, the king of kings came to this earth and took our punishment so that we might have the greatest inheritance of all. We don't need to cheat. We don't need to swindle in this world. We don't need to try to get ahead by, by schemes because the greatest treasure has already been won in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you. God, I praise you that our inheritance is secure in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that he has bought for us something that's more secure than any precious metal in this world. That our possessions may come and go, but his love for us is enduring. And God, help us to work well for your glory. Help us to use what we have and the great gifts that you've given us. Help us to use those so that your name might be heard throughout the entire world. God, help First Baptist Church to be a church that's known for its generosity, that's known for its cheerful givers. God, we long for this, not for our name's sake, but so that others might know the name of Jesus and praise his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.